morning. So good to be here with you this morning. If you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles, be turning to, to where I'm opening my Bible up, and that is the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. If you'd go ahead and open your Bibles there, be turning to Genesis. We're going to spend all of our time this morning in this book alone. We'll not really be going out of this book at all to, uh, uh, and be flipping around to many different passages. It's going to be very easy for you to follow along this morning, just, just sticking right here in this passage. In fact, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 12, if you want to go ahead and turn there. As you're doing that, taking your Bibles out, I want to say just how, how thankful I am to be here with you this morning. Very, certainly very thankful to our visitors to be here with you and be worshiping God together with you. And just in case you haven't had the opportunity to, to take out a a visitor card in the back of the pew in front of you. Fill that out, and that way we can just have a record of you being here with us and remember this date. Also very thankful for all the young faces that I see in, in the audience this morning is, that are here with us and, and for the, the parents that have brought them here to be with us. It is so encouraging to have our young ones. And I'm going to pick on Alexa for a moment because she's not here. Um, but, but last Sunday morning, Alexa came up to me afterwards, and she had, she had filled out one of the, the worship note sheets, and there wasn't a blank spot on that piece of paper. And so to see the young ones and see you all following along and listening to what's being said, it is such an encouragement to me, and I know it's an encouragement to, to all of the, uh, of, your, of the other adults here as well. As we go into what I want to talk about this morning, I want to focus our minds on, on a topic that I think we're all going to be able to relate to. I believe we'll all be able to relate in some way to this topic because I believe we've all probably experienced this, this before. But before I begin that, I want to start with telling you this, this short story that I heard the other day about a young boy who came home from baseball practice. And he comes home and he's got his outfit on, he's got his, his baseball hat and the team, the team shirt and his, his pants and his cleats and he walks home with his glove and his ball and bat and he comes in and his mom sees him and she's, you know, she just sees that cute little boy there in that baseball outfit and she's so uh, beaming with pride and she says, how was baseball practice today? And with a bit of a growl, he says, oh, it was terrible. It's terrible, mom. I struck out three times. And of course, this mom feeling the, the pain of, of seeing her, her child this way, she puts her arm around him. She says, there, there, honey, it's okay. That's, that's just part of the game. That's just part of what you go through when you play baseball. And with the roll of an eye and the huff of a breath, he says, Mom, it's T-ball. And for those of you who maybe don't know, T-ball is doing something to strike out at least even one time in T-ball, but especially three times. But you know, failure. Failure is a part of life. And I guess maybe failure is a part of T-ball too, but failure is certainly a part of life. And all of us have experienced failure in our lives. All of us have experienced making mistakes. And I'm going to say right now, all of us have, have committed sin in our lives. But what I want to talk about this morning is about the failure of the faithful. Because sometimes even the faithful fail. The good and the godly are imperfect. The, the strong can become weak and, and heroes can falter. And that's why, that's why we should do all we can to avoid putting people on pedestals. When we raise somebody up on a pedestal, we do things that, that are, are very unfair to them and very unwise for us. First of all, we set ourselves up for disillusionment when we do that. Because inevitably, when we put our heroes up on that pedestal, we're going to start to see things. We're going to start to see cracks. We're going to start to see flaws at some point. But the second thing we do is when we do that, 
We put expectations on them as well. Expectations that are more than any human can, can ever hope to, to, to bear. And when we do that, we're not, <clears throat> we're not doing any favors for those people that we admire uh, by replacing unrealistic burdens upon their shoulders. So no one, no one should be put on a pedestal. Not people that, that we, we know today in this life that we think and admire a lot of. Um, but also not people that we admire in the scriptures. We shouldn't put them up on a pedestal either. Any person that we might look at and think they are perfect except Jesus, that's just a person that we don't know well enough. Because I, I, I promise you this, we're, we're, none of us are, are perfect. But scripture tells the truth about our biblical heroes. Scripture tells us that all of them had their moments of mistakes all of them had their moments of failures, of unwise choices, and all of them had moments of sin. And we think of Noah. Man, there was a, a great person to admire. Joe talked on Sunday afternoon, last Sunday afternoon, about Noah. And, and he's someone that is very easy for us to want to put up on a pedestal. But do we remember that time when Noah got drunk? What about Moses? How could you not put Moses up on a pedestal? He, he stood before Pharaoh, before the, the king of all Egypt, and he said, you're going to let God's people go. And then after some, some coaxing by God, he marched God's people out of Egypt. He marched them across the Red Sea. We think a lot about Moses. Do, do we remember those times of anger when he lost his control? He allowed himself to be controlled by his emotions. What about David, a man after God's own heart who committed adultery, who committed murder to cover that adultery? Peter, Peter, as we see him lying in the bottom of that boat while Jesus stands there and he's saying, I'm a sinner, I'm not worthy to be near you. We see how quickly Peter realized his relationship to, this, to the holy deity that was in front of him there and, and how quickly he was to, to want to, when he followed him, to follow him seemingly fully. Say, just how rambunctious Peter was when we think of his life in the scripture. But do we remember when Peter very cowardly denied Christ three times? You know, we could go on all morning long with people that have, have had failures, but that are, are really good examples for us in, in the scripture and sometimes are called heroes of the faith. And one of the ones I want to focus our attention on this, this morning is that of Abraham. When we think of Abraham, we think of someone who who is certainly an example for us. In fact, Hebrews lists him as, as, as a, a hero of the faith and in a description of all those that, that we are to model ourselves after. But was he perfect? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Did he make mistakes? Yes. Did he sin? Yes. For the most part, it's actually Abraham's very first steps in following the Lord that makes him that hero, that portrays him as someone worthy of, 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 of example. It's true that he, he uh, did come to, to complete obedience, but that came very gradually for him. And we need to also recognize that he is worthy of us maybe tipping our hat to. Because having, having heard God's call, Abraham picked up and left everything. He abandoned his lifelong home. He abandoned his friends, his family. And if that was not amazing enough by itself, we need to add to the fact that when he did all that, he didn't know where he was going. He just, he just picked up and left. And then on top of all that, we also need to realize the age of Abraham. Abraham was in his mid-70s when all this happened. How many of, how many of our older, uh, uh, older adults are going to make a choice like that? They're going to make a choice just to, to pack up and leave everything. And for the most of us, 
We, we really like familiarity. We like what is, what is comfortable to us. And so Abraham's first steps of faith are nothing short of admirable. They are praiseworthy. And we read about them here in Genesis chapter 12. And that's where I said we're going to spend all, uh, pretty much all of our time this morning. Genesis chapter 12. Let's uh, read these first four verses together. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoke to him, and Lot with him. And now Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And so we see in Abraham's initial response here. God called, Abraham responded. And I want to say that's very significant, because that's the exact same interaction that we have with God today. God has a call for us. And we, there is a response that is, that is acceptable to him. Now, when Abraham left home, again, we say he left home without the knowledge of where he is going. He just knew one thing. He knew he was going to follow God wherever he was taking him. And verse 5 is going to go on to tell us that he takes Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all of their possessions and their, and their people that, that, that belong to them. And God brings them in to Canaan. Verse 6, let's pick up there. Abraham passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to, your, and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abraham journeyed on, continuing towards the Negev. So God has brought Abraham here to, uh, to the land of Canaan, brought him into the land. And we need to notice Abraham's relationship with God at this time. It's a relationship that describes his focus. That is exactly what he's focused on. He's walking through the land. He's seeing the land. He's listening to God's word as God says, uh, tells him a little bit about the land. This land is going to belong to your descendants. I'm giving it to you. And not only is he listening to his word, he is, also, he is also talking back to God. He is praying to him. He is building up these altars. He is praising God throughout this time. And then we get to verse 10. Verse 10 is a very interesting verse in this story. Verse 10 describes Abraham's crisis that he faces. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Here we watch Abraham face this first challenge when the severe famine swept over the area. Now, understanding the area is, is really important to understanding what's going on in Abraham's life. Where he is at, this, this area of Canaan is very similar to the, the um, ecosystem of, of California. If you picture California and, and the, the lush uh, uh, fields of grapes and how, how things grow so well at California, there, there are times of the year uh, where this moderate climate is very, very good. Uh, and when there is rain, the land produces an abundant harvest. We see lots of growth. But then there are also times of, in the years where there is drought, where there is not a lot of, run, uh, of rain. And it very quickly goes from one extreme to the other. The land becomes parched. The land becomes very dry. The grass withers. And this is very important to Abraham because he makes his livelihood, his, his whole life depends upon pasturing flocks. 
And so he has, he has marched all of these possessions out there, the, the sheep and, and his camels and donkeys and everything that he has, and there's no food. All the food, this severe drought has come in. This famine has swept over the area. And now he has nothing to feed his flocks. And that's a very, very difficult time for him. And so when food became scarce in Canaan, Abraham very likely becomes fearful. You can understand that. What am I going to feed my flocks? Well, how am I going to feed my family? How are we going to take care of ourselves? And so he, he feels the need to leave and to head towards Egypt. This is completely taking him out of the land of Canaan, taking him far from the land of Canaan. And now the Bible doesn't tell us whether Abraham asked permission from God to make this, this decision, to, to move forward in this path. But when we see how things play out in Egypt, we're going to read in just a minute how things go down. It does not appear that Abraham is one that could be said is walking by faith at this time. Until the famine struck, we see Abraham talking to God. He's, he's praying. He's setting up altars. <clears throat> memorializing the relationship that he has with the Almighty. But once the famine strikes, you notice we don't read anything about that anymore. All, and suddenly the scriptures are very silent on the relationship as well. One scholar wrote that in figurative language of scripture, Egypt stands for the world or an alliance with the world. And Abraham acted simply on his own judgment. He looked at the difficulties and he became paralyzed by fear. He grasped at the first means of deliverance that suggested itself much as a drowning man would catch at a straw. That was a pretty, good, uh, a pretty good commentary on what we see going on in this passage. See, in the Bible, Egypt always represents or presents to us a picture or a symbol of alliance with the world. And it was there that the children of Israel were held in bondage by Pharaoh for 400 years. And then even after they were delivered by the power of God, we read that Israel still longed for what they had left behind in Egypt. They still looked back to Egypt and miss the things that were there. And then later on in their history, the prophet Isaiah, he used Egypt to symbolize the nation's response to an invasion, saying in Isaiah 31 and verse 1, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but they do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. And we can be a lot like Abraham. We can seek our own personal escapes to Egypt, and they can take many forms. Some people escape to Egypt through the use of drugs and alcohol. Some people through overeating or overspending, gambling, other addictions such as pornography. Some people do it for, through a very busy social life. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fill my, my spiritual needs by burying myself with, with friends and with people that I like. Or sometimes we, uh, it is done through, uh, people find escape through Maybe a, a, an affair. Some people seek it through money or through status. There are many different ways in which people strive to escape the spiritual famines that sometimes enter our lives. And ultimately, whenever we try to satisfy our spiritual needs with worldly resources, what we have effectively done is fled from Canaan and into Egypt, escaped to Egypt. And for Abraham, running to Egypt, I do want to point this out, it does not seem that running to Egypt was a sinful decision in and of itself. But like all decisions that, that are made without faith, turning to Egypt became Abraham's precursor to the spiritual skid mark he's about to leave in his record. Let's go on and read verses 11 through 13. It came about, when he came near to Egypt, that he said to Sarai his wife, See now, I know that you are, you are a beautiful woman. 
excuse me, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live, live on account of you. This is Abraham's crisis response that we read going on here. In case of any of us, by the way, sometimes we read this passage. I know I'm guilty of this in the past. We read this passage and we're going to kind of feel a little bit better about ourselves, especially as maybe husbands go, you know what? I would never do what Abraham is doing in this passage. I would never put my wife in a situation like that. I would never make a decision like what Abraham is doing. If we are tempted to feel that way, and it's very easy to do so, I would remind us of what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is as common to man. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 13. You know, most of our days don't start off with us waking up with the intention to just fall headfirst into sin. Most times we don't wake up and just go, man, I wonder what sin I can get into today. And I imagine Abraham didn't wake up that morning and go, I wonder how I'm going to, to get myself into trouble this morning. But no, what happened is oftentimes we wake up and we face a crisis, just like Abraham did. We face a challenge to our faith and sometimes our default response takes over. At this point in life, Abraham's default response was not faith. His default response was falsehood. Now, many times we might be tempted to rationalize falsehood. And I imagine Abraham would have certainly tried to rationalize his falsehood. The reason why he told this lie. And first of all, very technically speaking, Abraham's little lie that he told actually contains a half-truth. Sarah was, in fact, his half-sister. So maybe that makes it not so bad. They had the same father. They just had different mothers. And what we might call today, Abraham was telling a little white lie. Is that really going to hurt anybody? In addition to being his wife, Sarah, <clears throat> excuse me, Sarah was his half-sister. But secondly, Abraham undoubtedly would have rationalized this lie as something very necessary to save his own life. By claiming to be Sarah's brother, Abraham was hoping that he could leverage local customs or, or ancient traditions to his advantage. Because as her husband, he might have been killed. But, but under ancient laws, as, as making himself her brother, well, that would have made him her guardian as well. So if anyone was interested in taking Sarah for a wife, they're going to have to go to Abraham. And they're going to have to make marriage arrangements with Abraham. And so here we come to another part of the story that I find a little bit startling uh, sometimes. And as we might say in, in, in the South, you might hear it said, Sarah, Sarah ain't no spring chicken. Sarah was 65 years old at this point, at least. And her beauty is described as so exquisite that Abraham feared that he would be killed for her beauty. So is this just Abraham being paranoid? Is this just Abraham coming down here and, and having these really crazy thoughts that, that somebody's going to actually kill him because his wife is so beautiful? It would seem that that is not the case. She was more than just beautiful in his eyes, as we're going to read in just a few moments. She was more than just someone that he thought was beautiful. And so her beauty at, at, at the age that she was, it very well could have gotten him killed. Let's go on and read about that in verse 14 through 16. It came about that when Abraham came into Egypt... The Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. 
Therefore he treated Abraham well for her sake, and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. What we see here in this passage are the effects of Abraham's sin. It appears not long after Abraham and Sarah came to Egypt that someone actually calls Abraham on his bluff. And his old plan backfires. Instead of giving him the wiggle room that he thought he would have to come down here into Egypt and to, to get what he felt like they needed, his little trick actually creates a hopeless trap. And so Pharaoh's officials, they see, they see Sarah and they go back and they just sing all of her praises to the Pharaoh. You won't believe how beautiful this woman is. And Pharaoh says, I want her. I want her in my harem. And he claims her. Now we can only imagine Abraham's anxiety Sarah's anxiety that they must have felt at this point. Now, fortunately, most ancient civilizations in Egypt wasn't, uh, wasn't uh, any different than this. They had marriage rituals that included a, a waiting period, usually a lengthy waiting period. And this was long enough to ensure that the bride-to-be was not going to be found to be pregnant uh, before the marriage. And so it's, it's very likely that while Sarah was taken from Abraham, lived with the Pharaoh in, in, his, in his palace, in his kingdom, um, she probably would have been protected from, from any violation that, that might have occurred. And that even includes from the king. And so in this meantime, Pharaoh, while, while Sarah is taken from Abraham, Pharaoh is sending Abraham all of these wedding gifts. He's sending her numerous things. And I can't imagine how Abraham must have felt every time he received one of those gifts. Here I came down here to try and, and get what we need, and now my wife is gone, and every time I get a, a, a camel or a donkey or, or gold or any that, that he received from them, it's just a reminder of the trouble that I am in. But I also want us to notice one thing other about the gifts and the, the far-reaching effects of Abraham's sin. Now, we read that he, he received sheep and oxen and donkeys, female and male and camels, they also received servants, manservants and maid servants. And I would imagine one of those maid servants probably was a little Egyptian girl named Hagar. That very uh, a while later in Abraham's story is going to play a very big part through no fault of her own in the story of Abraham and Sarah and their descendants. And so the price of living in Egypt the price of leaving Canaan and going to Egypt was a higher price than Abraham could have ever realized. And if he had known the high price of, of living in Egypt, I, I guarantee he would have never made the choice to try and pay that price. And again, while Sarah faces no, no immediate risk of being violated, imagine how she feels about her husband at this time. And she's far away from him. Imagine how she's thinking about Abraham. Imagine the fear that she feels. And imagine her thoughts of his leadership in their marriage. Abraham's little lie, which was intended to protect himself, had put his wife at risk and had put his marriage at risk. And once we move away from walking with God, our old habits, our default behaviors, they oftentimes take over. We find ourselves bogged down in deception and trapped in sin. And many times our sin doesn't just affect us. It also brings sufferings to the ones that are nearest to us and to our loved ones. And so we look at this situation and we have to ask ourselves, how in the world is Abraham going to get them out of this situation? 
How is Abraham going to get him and Sarah out of the danger that this sin had placed them in? As we read on, we're going to see that it, that it is God that is going to step in. He's going to take care of that. And thankfully, God, who made such a wonderful promise to Abraham, he was watching out for him, and he was willing to intercede and to provide a way out of this dilemma. Let's read through the rest of the chapter. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she was my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. I want to say we don't know how long Sarah was in the harem of the Pharaoh before God inflicted these serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household. But I I kind of get the feeling that it just wasn't an incredibly long time. And Pharaoh would have been a very idolatrous man, a very superstitious man. He had, he had the, the gods of, 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 of Egypt that he would have worshipped, and he also would have recognized gods of territorial lands. And so we can kind of imagine that he was wondering during this time, as all these plagues are on him, what have I done? What have I done? Asking that to his gods. What have I done maybe to offend a, 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 a regional god from some other territory? What is going on? And we don't know how he comes to the understanding that it is Sarah. I like to imagine, just me personally, that as he walks around his household and everybody is struck by this disease, he sees Sarah and there she is with nothing wrong with her. Now, we don't know that's what happened, but certainly that would raise a big red flag in our eyes. There is something that we need to consider here. But somehow, somehow, he comes, his suspicion is drawn. He comes to the understanding of what is going on. And here's where the great irony of Genesis chapter 12 comes into play. God uses Pharaoh. God uses a pagan king to teach his his chosen servant a very important lesson to uh, to rebuke his chosen servant. Abraham, when he came into Egypt, he should have been morally superior to the king of Egypt. He should have been able to come in and to shine the light of God into Pharaoh's very dark life. But that is not what happened. Abraham comes into Egypt and he is lying and he is getting himself into all sorts of trouble. And in the end, it is Pharaoh who demonstrates far more character and better morals than God's chosen servant. You know, we can't help but wonder. I can't help but wonder to look at this and say, I wonder what Pharaoh thought about Abraham's God after this experience. About the way Abraham uh, responds to his God and treats his God. And then I can't help but have the same question today. I wonder how people who have yet to embrace the God of the Bible because, uh, because they have seen the way that many who claim to be children of His, how they live and how they act and how they oftentimes fail. I wonder if that might not be some of the reasons why people have refused to, to embrace Him, refused to come to Him. With all the, pow- the power, you know, as we, as we consider this, as we move on with this thought of the situation that they were in and, and the moral high ground that Pharaoh is taking, with all the power he had, you would expect him to strip Abraham of everything that he has given him. All of these maiden servants and men servants, all the gold and silver and the, the animals, I'm taking that back. 
This was a bad deal. You gave me something you didn't have the right to be given me. I'm taking all that back. You expect him to throw him into prison. We would expect him to take him outside the, the city and, and execute him. That's not what happens. It's not what happens at all. Maybe more humiliating than anything, Abraham doesn't just get his wife back and say, we're going to mosey on out of here. Abraham is thrown out of Egypt. He is taken by the guards. Abraham, the, the Pharaoh says, you march him out, get him out of here. Escort him out of the country. And I don't know why. We can't understand why Pharaoh didn't either. But we see throughout this that he is allowed to leave with all of these gifts that have been given to him. And I'm guessing that when Abraham finally makes it back to Canaan, I imagine there's probably still a famine going on. And I imagine that as Abraham got there, he has to think about what has happened in this whole ordeal, in this experience. Do you think that Abraham came back to Canaan with a little bit more wisdom, with a little bit more understanding? I have to, I have to certainly hope that that's the case. I have to hope that Abraham had more wisdom and more understanding um, after everything that he's went through. And I wish I could say that he never again defaulted to falsehood, but I can't. Because in truth, it's not going to be too much longer before Abraham does the exact same thing again in Genesis chapter 20. Makes the exact same, uh, same sin again, saying, Sarah, say that you're my sister so we will be safe. And so that should tell us something very important about habits and about defaults. And that's a very important message to us. That's a very important message to our children as well and to the young ones that are here this, this morning. Make your defaults righteous. Make your defaults and your habits something that is faithful to God. So when times come that are going to put a crisis and a challenge on your faith, your default response is to turn to God. I heard a guy say one time, I made it my default not to cheat on my wife. So we were, we were laying in bed and our children were playing and, and everything was just so perfect. I said, I will never mess this up. I will never cheat on my wife. He said, but I never made it my default not to, to get drunk. I never made it my default not to steal. And when those situations were provided to me, he said, if a girl came up to me and was, was speaking to me and I had the idea that she was flirting with me, I could very easily say, I am not going to cheat on my wife, whether or not she was flirting with me or not. But when someone came up and offered to me a beer, or if someone came up to me and offered me an idea of, of hey, we could get, we could get some money really quick, said, I was not prepared because that was not my default. We need to make our defaults faithful to the Lord at a very early age. And, and, and we need to realize that it is hard to break those defaults, as Abraham proves in, in these passages. <clears throat> Let's read just one more bit before we, before we wrap up this lesson. Let's read what happens in the very first part of chapter 13. So Abraham went up from Egypt to the Negev. He and his wife and all that belonged to him and lot with him. And now Abraham was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he went on his journey, uh, journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, 
between Bethel and Ai to the place of the altar, which he had made there formerly. And Abraham, Abram called on the name of the Lord. Abraham is making a move here that it oftentimes has been described as fundamental. One could say that Abraham was trying to get back to the beginnings of things. And there are going to be times when we face similar failures as Abraham. When we commit sin, we default to that which is not righteous in the eyes of the Lord. And we need to understand something about those times. Those times are wrong. There is no way to, to get around that fact. They reveal that our faith is not looking to the Lord and our heart is turned from Him. But that does not mean that God has given up on us. And that does not mean that we can no longer receive any blessings from Him. Notice that Abraham was rich. Some of those riches that he had came out from this dark time in Egypt. Now I want to say that we should not read that and go, well maybe if I get things through, through ill-meaning Ill ways, if I get things through sin, that God's just going to let me keep those things and it's going to be alright. That is not the message we are to hear here. But God had promised to take care of Abraham. And he was certainly staying true to that promise by, by taking care of him. But there's also another important lesson that we can learn from this. And that is we can't just stumble around our failures either. We need to consider Abraham's travel itinerary at this time. And once he is kicked out of Egypt, and I imagine asked to ask himself, where do I go now? It would be very tempting just to stick around Egypt. Maybe I can't go back into the city, but maybe I can find somebody that's going in there. I'll give them a little bit of money. They can buy stuff for us, and they can bring it back out to us. We're just going to kind of camp out right here until things get better back home. That's not the call that Abraham makes, though, as we read in verse 1. Abraham left Egypt. He starts going back to the Negev, and he doesn't stop there. Negev is the southern part of Canaan. He goes back to the very beginning, back to where I was regularly conversing with God, back to where I was proclaiming his praise through building up altars. And we need to do that as well. We need to get back to that place as well when we realize we have failed. To turn away from Egypt to turn away from worldliness, to turn away from sin, and to turn back to God, back to prayer, back to taking all things to Him, to praying without ceasing, back to, taking, uh, or, or back to singing our thanksgivings instead of freezing in fear. This is Abraham's repentance that we are reading of here. And it must describe ours as well, turning away from the world, leaving the world, and turning back to God. And so let's make a few applications real quick as we move towards the conclusion of this lesson. Uh, I want to share with you four principles. Four principles that emerge from this very short account of, of Abraham's wavering faith and default response. The first one is we need to realize that everyone faces famines. Every one of us are going to face famines. And some of the famines we face are severe and seemingly come out of nowhere, out of the blue. Sometimes those famines that strike us are famines such as getting the worst possible news we can get from the doctor. Or maybe, maybe it is a famine such as bankruptcy or divorce, the death of a loved one. What about when a famine strikes? How are we going to face that crisis of faith? This is a question we need to ask ourselves. And that question is, who is it that I trust? In what do I trust? While our famines are fearsome, make no mistake, these famines are, are uh, I'm not standing here saying that they're nothing to, to, to be worried about. They are very scary things that we can be, be put up against. And they can be destructive at times. There's no promise that we won't face things such as that. 
but they also provide an opportunity for us to grow deeper in our relationship with God. And I'm reminded of a, of a very good friend of mine, a very close friend of my family. His wife has been struggling with cancer for quite some time now. And he recently wrote in a blog on his website, he said, I hate cancer. It is a vicious disease, and it seems like it is everywhere. In our church family of around 250 people over the last three years, six different members have been treated for it, my wife among them. Three of those facing the disease have passed from this life. I hate cancer. But in the name of Jesus, I am grateful for my wife's cancer. Why? Because God has worked through this circumstance to bring us closer to Him in ways I can't imagine would have happened otherwise. I can give thanks for this situation because God has created a level of intimacy in our young life as a married couple that it may have taken decades for us to reach without. And I can thank God because He has poured out His love through His people to a degree we would never have known had this disease not invaded our lives. Going through our famines appropriately can do for our relationship with God what absolutely nothing else can. So we must remember that everyone faces famines. Secondly, we must remember that every escape contains a lie. When we do anything we can to avoid facing our crisis of faith, and when we seek to escape through our old familiar methods, we tell ourselves a lie. That lie is, I can handle this without God. I can do this on my own. When we turn to our habitual default response, the coping strategy that has always worked for us in the past, we are trying to escape the test rather than trying to walk through it in the power of God. And Satan's lies, which take very many forms, but at the heart of all of those lies is this one lie, and that is it is better or it is easier to do it your way than God's way. But the truth is, it isn't. It never is. Thirdly, we must realize that every Abraham struggles with a weakness. Everyone, including the good and the godly, have their share of imperfections and flaws. And those weaknesses cause us to make unwise choices. Those weaknesses cause us to make selfish choices. And those weaknesses cause us to make sinful choices. Our only hope in overcoming those weaknesses is to draw near to God and to depend upon God's power to transform. And then fourthly, every compromise jeopardizes a Sarah. When we revert to our default response, someone gets hurt. And usually it's someone very close to us. Our lives consist of relationships arranged in concentric circles. It's like a bullseye target that you might shoot an arrow at. Our life is filled with relationships that are made up by these circles. And whenever we, whenever we sin, we jeopardize those in the closest circles to us. They are the most directly affected by the sinful choices that we make. But there is a ripple effect that goes out and most oftentimes will affect every single person that is connected to us, even in ways that sometimes we never see. In that sense... We need to understand that means there is absolutely no such thing as a victimless sin. There's absolutely no such thing as a, a private sin that is only going to affect me. Our choices, even when we sin alone in secret, always affect and radiate to others and jeopardize their well-being as well. 
Allow me to end with, with one more story. I believe it provides a very good example of, of what we're talking about here this morning. There's a man by the name of Hudson Taylor. He was a missionary in China during the late 19th century. And near the very close of his life was something known as the Boxer Uprising. And this was an essential, uh, in essence, it was a war. But it was a time in China when there was violent attacks on all foreigners and all foreign influence that was found in China. And these attacks were aimed especially at Christian missionaries and Chinese Christian converts because they represented outside influence on China. And so every day, while the government looked the other way, these so-called boxers, which really were just just another, a name given to, to gangs, to, to thugs. They would go around, they would attack foreign embassies, they would attack missionary compounds, they would attack churches, they would terrorize them, they would pillage them. There were even reports of rape and murder. And these new reports would come to the Hudson Taylor's missionary headquarters, the center that they had set up. And every day they heard reports of death and of persecution of these missionaries and of Chinese Christians. And this is what he had spent his entire life trying to build up, to evangelize to China, to build up the church there and to, to help it become established. And now, seemingly everything that he had worked for was crumbling before his eyes. And one day the news became particularly bleak. And his associates, fearing that, that the, the discouragement and the depression would prove to be too much for the elderly man, they went to him because he had spent the entire morning alone in his house. And so they go and they're fearing the worst. But as they approach, as they approach, they heard him singing aloud and singing this hymn. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. Thou hast bade me gaze upon thee and thy beauty fills my soul. For by thy transforming power, thou hast made me whole. This morning, I want to ask you, are you going through a time of testing, of trial, that makes it difficult to cling to your faith in God? Maybe you are facing a famine in some area of your life. I would have you ask yourself, am I attempting to escape the famine by fleeing to Egypt? You will find temporal relief in Egypt. I can guarantee you that. You will find things that, that for a very short amount of time will make you feel better. But the price that you will pay is more than you would ever want to pay. I want to encourage each and every one of us to remain with God even in the times of famine. When life is hard, we must hold tightly to God. We must say, I trust in you, Lord. I know, that, that I know that this too will pass, and I will stay right here. I will stay with you. I will not move through this crisis. That song that we sometimes sing, till the storm passes over, I will not be moved from my trust in you, O God. When we do that, when we can rest in the joy of who God is, and we can see the greatness of His loving heart, then His beauty can fill our souls. His transforming power can, can change us. It can, make us. it can make us whole. So that's the question I have for you this morning. Have you been made whole today? If you have not been baptized for the remission of your sins, 
If you have not confessed Jesus, and if you have not turned from your sin, if you have not turned to the Lord, then you are not whole today because there is something missing in your life. What is missing in your life is within your heart, and it is empty. And we can try to fill it with so many things that, that we might feel like actually fills that hole, actually fits that puzzle piece that is not there. But until we fill it with Christ, we will never be whole. If we can help you some way this morning, as we, as we stand to sing this song, Jesus is calling. I hope that you would consider these, these things that we have talked about. hope you would consider the life that you are living today. Is it a life that reflects a, a complete trust in God and of coming to Him in obedience and following after Him? And if there's any way in which we can help you to become a child of God this morning, or if you simply need the prayers of the saints here to lift you up before God, won't you please come forward right now as we stand and as we sing?